With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. What happens when a corporation's leader is so out of touch, they have to withdraw a major cultural change within 48 hours of making the announcement. Find out on this episode. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. And just to show how cool he is, Matt is recording this outdoors. So you may get some background noise in this, but it's all part of the Into the Weeds experience. So, Matt, welcome. Uh, Hello, Tom. And I am, in fact, literally in a pile of weeds right now on one of the quads right next to Harvard Law School, where I often work during the summer. So uh, I'm ready to roll. So, Matt, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about uh, the owner of the Boston Red Sox, John Henry, who also owns the Liverpool Football Club. And it really caught my attention because it was about Henry and some other uh, owners' abortive attempt to create a super league of soccer. And uh, it struck me that there are lots of lessons for the compliance practitioner in this. And if I might be able to set a little bit of the background uh, the Super League was going to be 12 uh, to 16 teams, European teams, that would create their own European Super League, spinning them out of their own uh, national leagues and uh, being in competition with UEFA and the Champions League. Uh, they hoped to uh, really monetize what they saw as undervalued assets uh, in their European uh, soccer clubs. And they announced this, and 48 hours later, uh, they dropped it. And somehow, John Henry, who I had always thought of as a, as a pretty good owner here in the United States, really became the face of the Super League because he went on video and apologized. And uh, it caught the ire of the English fans, but more particularly the Liverpool fans. So I wonder if we might explore this and see if there are any lessons learned from the compliance perspective. Do you have some initial thoughts? Well, yeah, sure. I thought this was a fascinating case because when the Super League first emerged for all of its 48-hour lifespan, I mean, right away I thought this was not a pleasant idea. I didn't know if it would succeed or fail, um, but I didn't like the implications. And I'm probably my response is – uh, representative of most other people over in Liverpool and throughout Europe. Uh, I thought that the big lesson for all of this, especially with John Henry, was just the lessons about how painstaking and difficult of a challenge it can be to be a leader trying to foster a large change in corporate culture, which is really what they were trying to do. They were trying to change the culture of professional soccer or football or whatever you want to call it over in Europe, but they were trying to change the professional uh, culture of it. And uh, they did not succeed because the leaders vis-a-vis John Henry were clearly not in step with what their stakeholders 
the fans and I also think probably a lot of the players and even some of the coaches, what their stakeholders were wanting to do. Um, the, the desires of the leaders were not in alignment with the desires of the stakeholders. And very quickly, that became a big mess. And I suspect that idea, that dynamic, that's probably something a lot of compliance officers could relate to and have probably seen at some point in their career. You mentioned the stakeholders, and of course, that term has become more ubiquitous after the corporate roundtable statement on the purpose of a corporation, expanding out the purpose of a corporation from simply shareholders to stakeholders. In the soccer world, your customers are your fans, and uh, in the compliance world, your customers are employees. So I was really interested that the stakeholder group, uh, one of the biggest ones, did not seem to have been uh, uh, consulted, let alone, let alone brought in on uh, the decision and why that is so critical now, uh, uh, at least to have consultation, but perhaps to lay the groundwork for such a major cultural shift. Well, you know, it's funny because I had been writing down some notes before our talk here today, and I had said from a CEO perspective, leadership requires an enormous amount of empathy and enthusiasm and like demonstrable empathy and enthusiasm. And John Henry, if we want to get back to him for a moment, I think he's a very supremely intelligent man and successful businessman, but I don't think he's a good leader like that because the man does not demonstrate empathy and enthusiasm. Maybe he's got it on the inside. I, I have never seen it on the outside, and I've been watching him here in Red Sox Nation for 15 years, and I haven't seen it. Um, but really, when you talk about empathy in more of the compliance and business unit context, that would be more like knowing the business, which we all talk about all the time. How do you want to implement a big change, and how do you get the first line of defense to go along? You really have to know the business, and you have to sell the, the target – that's not the ideal word, I suppose, but if you want to sell the target audience on your plan, selling them on this new vision of a better compliance posture, you're going to have to explain to them why doing good business is in their own best interests. Um, that's the sort of challenge that I think a lot of compliance officers encounter. I think it's a lot one that they all grasp. Uh, I think it might be one that John Henry did not grasp, or maybe he didn't understand that this was not at all what uh, his stakeholders were perceiving was his grand vision. They perceived it to look something quite different. But uh, that, that was a big lesson I thought about. Empathy and enthusiasm is really just another word for knowing the business and explaining how your vision matters for that. Another driving force in the creation of the Super League, and I think in John Henry's mind, also was uh, perhaps greater profits or profit maximization. And that really brought up uh, the idea that in the United States, sports teams are seen as uh, cash cows and are very profitable. And owners uh, routinely um, take steps to increase their profitability. And there may be some gnashing of teeth by fans in the United States, but they're generally accepted. Uh, in Europe, uh, football clubs, as you call them, are seen not necessarily as uh, cash cows are profit machines. In Spain and Italy, they're run at huge deficits, uh, but that, that is accepted by the fan base because what they uh, really want there is results and to be um, hoisting their nation's trophies or the Champion League trophies. So how do you uh, 
how does a U.S. company reconcile uh, the really two different cultures if they're either going to purchase through mergers and acquisition a non-American company or make such a huge cultural change as we saw attempted with the Super League? Well, I think you'd really have to distill your plans down to what are the basic priorities and values that you, the leader, that you want to achieve, and how do you convince all parties that their interests and values and priorities are the same as yours? And I think there's a telling lesson here with John Henry, because as my reading of the situation with the Super League is, it's not necessarily so much that he wanted to maximize profits, although I'm sure he did, but the mechanics of it would be that the Super League would have been a more stable system. It would have delivered more certainty of a revenue floor for these super teams so that they could have an easier ability to, to reach a payoff for their investment in, I guess, new players, new coaches, new facilities and whatnot. You know, he wanted guarantees um, so that he could then maximize his profits. And that's not at all what fans and the players were interested in. Their priorities and values were quite different. Uh, they had wanted, I guess, their, I would say more like a sort of reciprocal loyalty. We, the fans, we, the players, we will fight for our team. And if we win sometimes, that's great. That's what we want. If we lose, okay, but we'll be back next year. I know that the Champion League, as it is structured right now, it's, it's much more uncertain that any team could wind up getting uh, relegated down into the, the bins for a couple of years, or they could get promoted up to the playoffs and the championship if they win. Um, and like that's what John Henry was trying to get past. And like you said, Tom, I, I don't know that necessarily a lot of team or a lot of players, a lot of fans would care all that much you know what's really more important to them is the loyalty and sticking with your team because that's where you grew up that's what you've known for your whole life um probably red sox fans could appreciate that because for decades we were loyal to a team that totally stunk um and granted john henry did come in and he gave us two world series championships right away when he took over in the 2000s but like there's what are the key values and priorities for your stakeholders? And they were not in step with what John Henry thought of at all. And I, I'm not sure he should have been surprised at what happened there. And it all blew up in their face. Matt, another point I wanted to explore is the almost violent reaction of the Liverpool fans. And I say violence, not because they engaged in violence, but they were uh, their protest stopped a, a game from being played because they stormed uh, the pitch, what they, they call the soccer field in England to prevent a game with a, a really heated rival, uh, Manchester United. And that really, uh, what I wanted to explore is how does uh, our, our American CEOs to Ivory Towered, uh, is this a situation where no one would even begin to speak truth to power did uh, was uh, did John Henry have blinders on, which didn't allow him to even consider uh, how violent a reaction might be? Because this this is beyond simply saying no, we're not going to take it. This is actually going to the streets and, and protesting. Well, uh, first I got to say, as a long-suffering Red Sox fan, I didn't know you could do that because there have been so many games and decisions where, geez, all we had to do was riot in front of Fenway Park to make the decision go another way, and we could have had a starting pitcher take the bench or <laughs> reversed a trade. Jeez, had we only known. Um, but no, I, I do. First, I think that probably 
there are some strains of anti-American sentiment in this whole John Henry Liverpool dynamic. Um, but, you know, I, it's probably fair to say, and this might be a bit more populist than I would really like, but it's probably fair to say that John Henry, billionaire extraordinaire that he is, uh, does not understand his customer base as well as he'd like. Uh, I, I think it's actually it's telling that when he gave his video apology, which he did, he posted it on YouTube or something, he had said something to the effect of, here's a direct quote, I found it, even when we make mistakes, we're trying to work in your club's best interests. Your club didn't say mm. in our team best interest. This was something else. And he really did see it more as an asset to be developed and exploited for maximum profit. Um, I'm not necessarily sure we should be surprised by that when you are a financial asset manager like John Henry is. Um, you know, that's that's what he's done his whole career. He has made fantastic sums of money doing that. But there's a difference between being a commodities trader or a private equity investor owner versus something that is so immersed in multiple stakeholders like running a pro sports team. Um, so I just I do think that John Henry might not be as in touch with the common man as he would like or as he might think. And he gravely miscalculated here. Not that I'm always, I don't know that I'm the paragon of the common man, but right away I looked at that plan and I thought within 10 minutes, this A, this stinks, and B, I don't know that this is going to fly. And sure enough, 48 hours later, it was a lame duck that got put out of its misery. Uh, leadership uh, front, Matt, you talked about uh, enthusiasm and empathy. And I think in the lack of empathy, we saw that Henry really didn't appreciate the passion of the um, Liverpool fan base. But let me focus on the enthusiasm a little bit, uh, because I also watched that YouTube clip. And although he was uh, properly chastened, I think when uh, he made that, uh, I believe you're right. I've never seen him uh, be completely enthusiastic. And this really would require a, a sales job. And so should a, a CEO bring in an, a, a Steve Ballmer type or, or someone else who can bring some enthusiasm to an effort? Or how do you see the role of enthusiasm in leadership? I, I think it matters a lot. And uh, I don't necessarily know that bringing in a Steve Ballmer type, like when Steve Ballmer ran Microsoft, and he ran it quite well. I don't know that that is necessarily the right move. But um, enthusiasm and passion do matter. Uh, you know, I think maybe it, there are some questions here about what this really says that some organizations or cultures become too big to lead effectively. Um, and I think corporate executives could appreciate that point because how often have you seen or encountered a subculture within an enterprise uh, saying that the CEO or the C-suite way in their corporate headquarters, they don't know what it's really like here and we're not going to go along with that. Um, I've seen that happen. The subculture had no clue what they were really talking about. It goes both ways. But the leader has to meet the subculture where the subculture is. And, you know, they have to demonstrate a certain bond with the challenges the employees face. And they have to believe that they can make the employees' challenges more manageable, more achievable, that our goal that we want to pursue is worth pursuing, and that you believe it and that you can sell it. Um, I think passion and enthusiasm go a long way, probably more than eloquence or sophistication do. Um, 
John Henry is, well, he's, I don't know that I would ever say he's got a lot on eloquence, but he is a very sophisticated thinker, but he looks like he got too carried away with his ambitions and didn't stop to think about how he has to bring everybody else along. Well, Matt, I always enjoy looking at the world of sports to see what compliance lessons we can draw. And it seems like we can draw some uh, pretty, pretty big ones from the Super League fiasco. I agree, Tom. Thank you very much. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions, you can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. We're going to link to Matt's blog post on this issue, which I know you will enjoy. This month on the Compliance Podcast Network, I premiered a new series, Survive and Thrive, where with my co-host, Courtney Nordrum, we take a look at compliance disasters, what are the lessons learned, and more importantly, how can you avoid them? I know you will enjoy this great new series. Courtney's a natural on the podcast. We do a video show as well, so check it out on either YouTube or if you want the audio version on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.